Welcome to this episode of Mystics and Skeptics. Now here's your host, Sybil. Hello, fellow humans. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you are. Today we have John Christie on Mystics and Skeptics. John is a religious scholar in biblical and classical studies. He's also a filmmaker, a teacher. John, welcome to Mystics and Skeptics. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Great. John, is there anything else I missed that listeners should know about you before we begin? Um, no, I think I think that pretty much covers it. Um, I'm generally a good guy. I think that's important to put in there. <laughs> yeah, we all strive to be good. <laughs> that's right. So the goal on my podcast is to discuss a range of religious beliefs around the world, spiritual beliefs, what have you. And when it comes to specifically the Abrahamic religions, I wanted to explore notable prophets, prophets who uh, are really just as fallible and human as we are, who've made mistakes, who made some poor decisions, yet were able to learn from them and redeem themselves and redeem themselves in the eyes of God. And one of my favorites is uh, David. Uh, David comes across as someone who... um, had his faults, he had his troubles, right? He made some poor decisions, poor choices throughout his life, but he was also a man of many virtues and uh, someone who uh, God carried through because of his faith and obedience uh, throughout his life and uh, to rule the kingdom of Israel. Um, so, you know, across the three religions, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're more of an expert than I am, you know, uh, David is someone who's, who's revered uh, as a man who was divinely appointed, uh, someone who's relatable, and uh, someone who was unwavering in his faith in God. So I want us to talk about David and his life, his ups and downs, and how he remained a man after God's own heart. Absolutely. John, could you share what we know about David's childhood? Sure. Um, you know, what we do know about him was he was one of the younger of Jesse's boys. Um, he was often relegated to kind of what happens. I'm, I'm the youngest of five, so I understand. You know, you get stuck with the, the bottom of the totem pole type of work, and that, in his case, was tending sheep, not doing the exciting things, not out doing the great things. He wasn't out fighting battles or prospering the family inheritance. He was uh, watching the sheep in the fields and letting his mind wander and fighting against uh, mythical creatures with his staff and his slingshot and just doing what boys do, right? But at the same time, keeping the responsibility of taking care of the sheep. Um, we do know, you know, as he gets a little bit older um, and witnesses his brother's cowardice, I guess, and the rest of Israel's cowardice um, against the Philistines that he stands up with his mouth and says, you know, hey, I can take care of this Philistine. Who is he to talk against our God? And and yet all his job was at that time was to bring sandwiches to his brothers, basically. Um, and as a result, he digs himself into a hole that he has to get out of, which is, as we know, the story of David and Goliath. And um, And he does it not by, you know, in his words, in a sense, not by his own might, but by the power of God. Uh, He slays the the Goliath and takes him down, cuts his head off, and as a result, instills fear into the Palestinians, or the Philistines, I should say. And as a result, they they flee, and Israel pursues them. And that's kind of the first heroic thing we see of David. 
Um, and then as he progresses, you know, through that championship, in a sense, he becomes a part of Saul's army. He becomes a part of Saul's inner court. He at one point is a minstrel to Saul and uh, brings music to, to heal his demons, as, as it said. And, um, and he becomes very close to, to Saul. And um, as he grows in Saul's cabinet or his uh, administration, Saul becomes jealous of him. He sees that David becomes a great warrior and he becomes jealous of that as the song is sung. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and that really irritates Saul. Um, David becomes well known as a leader of men as opposed to a dictator over men. And as such, uh, Saul feels that this boy is growing to become powerful. He's a threat to my throne. And Saul fears that David would be the anointed one of God, would take away his throne. And Saul comes up with ways that he can plot and scheme to kill David, and um, and David avoids Saul repeatedly. When given the chance to kill Saul, he chooses not to, because he sees Saul still as the anointed of God, and who is he to make that decision, which gives us a lot of insight to David's personality. And um, And eventually, as the story goes, you know, Saul in his passing, David becomes the king of Israel, and um, and he becomes a significant king because he's one of the first cases, and I, I believe he is the first case that we have where a priest, a king also serves in the role of a priest. Um, and he, as you mentioned, he's also known as a prophet, and he's really a prototype of who's to come, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king of Jesus. Let's talk about Saul just for a moment to give listeners, you know, a, a comparison, right? I mean, Saul was originally anointed by God to be the king of Israel and his house, his dynasty would continue to rule Israel. That was the promise that God had made to Saul. However, Saul, um, I believe, lost favor in God's eyes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what Saul did and um, to lose favor with God? Yeah, Um it's not really a thing. It's I, I think what we learn from Saul is it's more a pattern of his um, his mindset, his heart, his mentality. You know, Saul is painted to us as the the picture of what a king should be. He's tall. He's strong. He's powerful. He can fight barehanded. He can fight with the sword. He's very dominating. He's very charismatic. He's very dynamic. He's a leader. He's a born king. He's a ruler. And and we see this, you know, Samuel, the prophet sees this strongly, that Saul is clearly the anointed one of God. He just fits it. And, um, and Saul relishes in that. Saul takes pride in that. Saul sees his achievements very much as his doing, but they're his doing for the Lord. So he definitely has an honorable trait to him where he keeps the Lord in mind. But I think the main message we learned from Saul is that, um, in comparison to David's, again, Saul's attitude was, I am blessed by the Lord to do these works. And David's attitude was more the type of, I can't do these works, but by the Lord. And, uh, and so Saul takes a lot of pride, um, accomplishment in what he can do and his strength and his power. And granted, he's doing it for the Lord. You know, he's righteous because he's doing right, but he's doing it by his own power. And, um, and so that gives us a little bit of insight to him. And then we have this one event 
where Prophet Samuel instructs Saul and his army that they're to go and to destroy, um, forgive me, I believe it's the Canaanites, or, um, but the enemies that they were going up against, um, and he's to destroy everything. He's to destroy man, women, children, ox, sheep, cattle, destroy anything that they have. Don't plunder, don't keep things, don't do anything. Wipe it all out. And he doesn't do that. And he saves the best of the best of the cattle. And in his mind, at least what he tells Samuel, is that he did this because he wanted to sacrifice them to God. And how wonderful that would be, because we're taking the best. And, and in fact, this is what God commands of us, right? This is from the Levitical laws that you take the top of your sheep, of your cattle, and those are what the best, perfect, most creatures that you can find are what we sacrifice. That's what we give to God, nothing but our best. And that's what Saul does. And Samuel tells him at this time, uh, this is a famous passage where Samuel instructs that it's better to obey than sacrifice, meaning you were told of a specific thing to do and, and you didn't do it. You thought you had a better way of things. And this is very reminiscent of Genesis 3, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because everything points back. I could almost, if I talk too long about any part of the Bible, I'll always end up at Genesis 3 again, which is where Eve eats from the fruit of the tree of good and uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the same thing. It's a questioning of God's authority. It's a questioning of God's judgment. Did God really say, should I really be doing this? And that's ultimately what we what we have is our what we call depravity in Christian theology. It's really that's the depravity of man is that we think we know better. We we have this pride that says we can do it better than God can. And so we question, as Saul did, and we do what's right. Now, personally, I don't believe Saul was saving these things for sacrifice. I believe that was his get out when the prophet Samuel came and confronted him and said, why didn't you destroy everything? And I believe that's also why he was instructed to destroy everything, because God, knowing the heart of man, knew that Saul was too covetous. He, was, he wanted these things too bad. And so I think Sam, uh, Saul was saving these things for himself. But being caught, you do what children do, and you, or grownups do as well, I guess. <laughs> you make excuses. So, um, so ultimately, I think that's the person you're dealing with in King Saul, is he's in it for himself. He's in it for his own gain. And he is very benevolent, he's very kind, he's very generous, he's very giving, he's very protective, as long as your interests don't conflict with his. And if your interests conflict with his, he's going to choose himself over you, which is not very kingly. Uh, it, it, I should say it this way. It's not how a king should act, but it probably is more or less in line with how most kings do act. Right. I think you nailed it on the head, right? I mean, so Saul's act of disobedience, maybe, and, and you said pride and making excuses, right? I, I think, you know, when we talk a little bit more about David, he uh, was kind of the contrary of that, putting God first, right, before self. So uh, yeah. 
No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um, also something about David, you know, I, I don't know, if, I would like to get your thoughts on it. You know, when he was a younger, when he was a shepherd boy, you had talked about uh, tending his father's sheep. You know, I think it's in the Psalms, I believe. It might be in 1 Samuel, but I think it's in the Psalms where when he was a boy, you know, before Samuel even stopped by, you know, that he, a lion came and took one of the lambs and David, just being the precocious boy that he was, went after the lion slit his throat and save the lamb, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's just a metaphor, you know, describing his bravery and his sense of duty to protect his father's sheep. Yeah, he, he says, uh, uh, this may be what you're alluding to, but when he, when he goes, so the story before David and Goliath is that uh, the father, Jesse, I believe, sends David to bring food to his brothers who are out in the front line. And so David goes to bring him and he sees, he hears um, Goliath making these blasphemous claims against Israel and he's just taunting and, and Israel's not doing anything. And he says, you know, what, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that, you know, the, the insult of insults that he could give at his young age. Um, but who is this uncircumcised Philistine saying these things against Israel and the God of Israel? And why isn't anyone standing up to him and his brothers? And, you know, they basically say to him, you know, shut your mouth. You, you're out of you're out of order. You're out of your place. Go back home. You shouldn't be here anyway. And David says, "Well, obviously none of you are." And I'm paraphrasing, but none of you are willing to stand up and fight against him. So, um, <laughs> so let me. I'll go. I'll go cut his head off. I'll go deliver him before the Lord. And they're like, they start laughing. You know, who are you to think you could do this? And he says, "Look, I've been out tending the sheep, and I've got my staff, and I've got my." slingshot. And anytime a wolf would come or a bear or a lion would come, I'd attack them and I'd fight and I'd defend those sheep. And this guy is no more, I'm no more afraid of him than I was of that wolf or that bear or whatever it may be. So I can take him. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty gutsy on David's part to, to think that. But again, his attitude isn't because of my own strength, because he does make a statement to that about, I can do this in the Lord. Again, reflecting back to Saul, who operates in his own strength, David operates under the strength of the Lord. Exactly, exactly. You know, one thing that's a personal uh, favorite of mine of the story in his childhood, when Samuel stops by, right, to see Jesse and uh, tries to find the which son is the king, the God-anointed, uh, uh, who's going to be the king of Israel. You know, he, he Samuel gravitates towards the eldest, right? The biggest, the strongest, and... <laughs> I, I, you know, I love underdog stories, you know, and here we go. This unassuming David, you know, comes in and um, there he is, who's going to be the king of Israel. And-, and and those are the beauties in the stories, you know, and this is where my my interpretation of, of much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is to allow the authors to have their literary freedom, you know, and and whether it happens exactly the way that the uh, whoever wrote first and second Samuel, whether that was, and I don't believe it was actually Samuel because he passes in it. So somebody's writing it for him and whoever's telling the story says it in such a great poetic way where basically, you know, Samuel starts at the oldest brother and he goes down the line of, is it, is it seven brothers or was there seven boys total? I, for, I forget exactly how many, but he literally like goes down the line. He's like, Oh, surely this is the one, you know, he's the tallest, the handsome, the he's the King. And God's like, Nope. And then he's like, the second, he's like, oh, well, this makes sense because this one's just as handsome, but he's smart. And God's like, nope. And he gets all the way to the bottom. And it's almost like, 
are you telling me this guy, this little skinny, scrawny, this one, he doesn't even look like a king. And God says, that's the famous quote in the Bible again, that, you know, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the, God looks at the heart of man. And this is who I've anointed, this who I'm calling, you know, it's beautiful. And again, whether it happens literally that way, or it's just teaching us a theological truth, it doesn't make a difference in my opinion. It's, it's the, it's the truth as it is. So uh, you had talked about, you know, uh, David joined Saul's court. You know, I, I think David was a harpist. You know, he soothed Saul, who was facing a lot of, I think, mental troubles and anxiety. Um, and then Saul cast David away because Saul attempted to kill David a couple of times. Um, you know, a couple of things I noted I would like your opinion on is, you know, David had a couple of quote unquote, guardian angels and Jonathan and even his wife uh, is in Michelle, right? Saul's daughter, you know, where they kind of protected him, right? I mean, uh, from Saul, would you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they rallied for him. They, um, they defended him, you know, to their father and they did the best they could to protect him. Uh, didn't keep Saul from throwing a spear at him one night while David was playing the harp for him, but Bad aim. Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank God. So, um, you know, David's cast out. He's uh, banished, what have you. Uh, it seems like he he now he enters, you know, he's in his 20s, probably. I'm guessing, you know, in his 20s, uh, he, he kind of joins like a vagabond lifestyle, like a Robin Hood type of life, lifestyle, it seems. Could you talk a little bit about that period of, in his life? Yeah. I mean, they so he flees because of Saul trying to kill him. And you're right. He becomes like the, the head of the rabble rousers, the, the, in a sense, the Robin hoods, um, the vigilantes for Israel. Uh, again, his, his goal isn't at that time in his life to, um, do what's right for himself, but his, he's still out to do the work of the Lord. He wants to do what, in some cases, what Saul won't do, can't do. Um, and David wants to be about God's kingdom. And again, Saul is really more about being about for himself. And so Dave, David has um, a crew of men with him that are, um, you know, for their day and age are, are, again, you know, pretty much the the tough, rough, vigilante guys. And, um, and they often get found in conflicts with Saul and his army. And, it, and it's interesting because it, it always becomes a pursuit where Saul and his army are pursuing David and his men. And David's trying to push back with an attitude of like, you know, no, stop this. You know, I'm not going to fight God's anointed king. And he gets some words from others that are like, you know, we can get him. We can kill him. We can, he finds one moment when Saul is vulnerable and David has, has him. He can kill him right then and there and he can take the throne. He's got his army. Um, those who follow Saul more follow him out of allegiance to Israel than they do to the person of Saul, where David is followed more out of reverence and respect for who he is. So he knows if he attacks Saul, he can kill him and he can take the throne. But David says, who am I to slay the anointed of God? I would never do that. And he doesn't kill Saul. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. You know, um, it's, it's who David was, you know, despite his, uh, his failings, despite his, his own powers that he has, you know, he put everything in, in respect and in light of what God is doing. It's, it's that 
Christian ethic of thy will be done over my will be done. So yeah, there is one um, uh, during this period in his life, David, um, uh, I believe uh, he goes to a uh, tabernacle, right? Where he approaches a priest, uh, a knob, I believe the place where it happened, where David and uh, some of his, what do you call it? his gang of friends you know that we, yeah his gaggle <laughs> the gaggle you know they go they're hungry right they're on the run they're fugitives more or less you know and uh, david falsely represents himself he per- impersonates and says he's there uh the king sent him you know because he's hungry and i believe the bread uh from the tabernacle is considered holy do you know anything a little bit more about the story you can add to it yeah and and so as the story goes, you know, David and his men, um, they eat of the bread that was supposed to be set aside for the priests is what it actually was. And it's, it's the show bread and it's, it's the meal for the Levitical priests. And, um, and they're hungry, you know, they've been fighting, they have nowhere to be and, and they want the food. And so where you see this story, it does present on the surface a problem because here they're breaking the law, you know, this is the, this is the old commandment law that he was living under at the time, the Mosaic law, ultimately to the Levitical laws, which were the more detailed. And, and in those laws, you know, many scholars, this isn't my categorization, but many have given us the, the outline of those laws, that there are moral laws, there's ceremonial laws, and there's civic laws. And this falls under the ceremonial laws. Um, same type of laws as how to sacrifice an animal for atonement and so on. But um, anyway, either way, it was a law, and David and his men on appearances should not have been doing that. However, the difference is, um, and I'll relate this in a New Testament story in a moment, but what I can see first to, to mention to that is David was a king, but he was a priest. And he was able to do sacrifices. He was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron's line. And, um, and as such, he had access to the tabernacle. He particularly, you could say, had a right to eat that bread. But his men weren't priests. But if, his men, serve under, if, priests, if men serve under a priest, then it could also be justified to say that they're part of the priesthood. That's kind of an explanation to say, you know, here's a way you can get through it in a loophole, um, which may or may not be a loophole. But I think the greater point to the story is found in, um, I think it's Matthew 12, where Jesus and his disciples um, are walking through the grain fields. And it's, a, it's the Sabbath and his disciples are hungry and they start picking the grain and they're eating it. And the, uh, the Pharisees see them and they chastise them. Your disciples are working on the Sabbath because they're harvesting grain and they're eating them. Now, obviously, most people would look at that and say, well, boy, you're really trying to catch them on the letter of the law. But this is what Pharisees were to do. And it was in their holy interest to keep righteousness. They wanted to keep the law perfectly. So anything that showed work, and in this case, picking grain from the fields and eating it on the Sabbath, was a no-no. First of all, just walking through the fields because you're walking too far. That's considered work anyway. So they're breaking all sorts of laws, yet here they are with Jesus. And the great point to that story, as well as David's story, is really summed up when Jesus explains to them, the Sabbath was created for man, 
man was not created for the Sabbath. And you can say that to any of the laws. The laws were created for man. Man was not created for the laws. And what that really is telling us is that while we have these laws in place, we don't follow by the letter of the law. We follow by the heart of the law. And this gets to such a larger topic in theology. Um, I don't want to delve too far into necessarily unless you want to go there because it, it literally could take you know, the next hour of our discussion or however long. But I'll say all that to just say this part to it. What we routinely see through Jesus' teaching, specifically on the Sermon on the Mount, when the Sermon on the Mount begins, he starts with all these things. You've heard it said one thing, I'm telling you another thing. You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder someone. I'm telling you if you talk bad about someone, you've committed murder. He emphasized it. He expanded upon it. He put a a magnifying glass on it and made it so much more expounded. He says, you've heard not to commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. Again, he expanded upon it, and he does this with many of the laws. And the point that he's making is that no matter how hard you try to keep the law, if your heart is not right, then you're not keeping the law. Because the law will judge you for your heart, not just for your actions. And so that flips both ways. Again, the Sabbath is created for man, not man created for the Sabbath. The laws are created for man to keep to to show man, Paul reveals this to us in Romans seven, to show man basically that you cannot achieve righteousness in your own power. You need salvation. This is where Paul says, the oh wretched man that I am, who's gonna rescue me from this body of death, this law that's hanging over my head and I can't keep it as hard as I try. So David understood that from a standpoint of he was God's anointed. He was a priest, even though he may not have been recognized as a priest. He knew his position as God's anointed gave him a priestly right. And David knew that the bread was created for man, not man for the bread. That the rules, the ceremonial things were created for man. It wasn't man was created for them. The Pharisees, most of us in our attempts to try to do right to be good Christians or whatever it may be, live the way that live the opposite. We live as if we were created to keep these laws. And the truth is, is no, these laws were created for us. And so what that essentially means in my way of explaining it is yes, while David did use deceptive tactics, yes, while David did break the law, his understanding was that in the scope of the universe and the scope of who God is and what God is all about, None of this matters. What matters is our hearts for God. And my heart's pure. My heart's after God. So I can do what I want in a sense. I've often said it this way. When God gave the Ten Commandments, and then further when the Levitical laws were given, I think there could have been a change in the storyline had Israel said to God, there's no way we can fulfill all of this. Have mercy on us and forgive us our sins. But Israel never did that. They never did that. And that's what you see throughout all of the Old Testament is they routinely either made vain attempts to keep the law, and by vain I mean superficial, artificial things, so they wouldn't eat the showbread, but they may curse the priests for eating it, or something like that. Or, so they either made vain attempts at keeping the law, or they just flat out stopped. 
They didn't know it. They didn't learn it. They didn't teach it to their children and it left them for generations. Or they just went the opposite direction of apostasy and just completely rebelled against the law. So it was either vain, ignorance, or rebellion. That's really what you get through the Old Testament. And as a result, they were ultimately judged for it. They, they were so blinded by their own selfishness that they never saw the Messiah when he came. And that's ultimately what Israel was judged for. Um, so I'm hope, I hope I'm giving you a good enough answer. I know I've been talking for a little while, so I'll stop there. But any of that you want me to expound upon or go into detail, let me know. No, thank you. I mean, about the laws, uh, the Mosaic laws and all that. I'd love to do a separate session with you on, on delving deeper in, in that area. I mean, but um, the fact that David was a priest, uh, I, I had no idea. So this was completely new to me and very informative. I thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. And again, he wasn't, um, when I say he, was a, he wasn't a priest by the line of Aaron, Aaron's lineage was the priesthood. Again, this was kind of the the man rules. This is the, this is the system we have in place following the letter of the law. And what we learned from David is technically you didn't have to be a Aaron's line to be a priest because think of it this way. If someone operated in the role of a priest who's under Aaron's line, but let's say he was bad. He was a bad person. He did manipulative things. He did horrible things. He stole from the from the treasury, he just, whatever it was, right? He did these bad things, but no one knew it. He never got caught and he operated in the role of a priest or another man who's the head of his family, who is of a different line, isn't technically the priest, but he guides his family. He watches over his family. He leads them in sacrifices. He does all the things to fulfill the law. Who really is the priest in that? situation. And that's kind of, and that's the point that the Bible tries to get at is priests aren't appointed. Priests aren't a person designated. Priests are in your heart. And it's again, everything with the law, everything with Christianity comes, everything with God, I should say. Again, picking who the anointed king is of Jesse's sons. Man looks on the outward. God looks at the heart. And that's what you see repeatedly in all of this with David. That's right. So it comes down to intentions, right? The heart and intention. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, David had a, David did not have a smooth or short road to kingship. Yeah. But he is known for his wisdom and justice, you know, when he was dealing with his, uh, with people, you know, whether his followers or his subjects, when he, he did become king. Um, you know, you talked about, you know, David spared Saul's life. I think it was twice, right? And, um, and, you know, when Saul did die, when he heard about it, can you tell us what David did when he heard about when the person who told him about it? Yeah, um, this is going to maybe challenge my uh, my memory on this situation. Sorry, I didn't brush up on this part of, of anything. We can skip over it. No, no, that's fine. I mean, we can talk to I, I know he did. He did. Um, he did go into mourning. He he uh, tore his clothes and and repented. I. I want to think that um, if I'm remembering the story correctly, did he, uh, he got outraged. The guy said he killed Saul. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The person said that he's the one who killed Saul, which enraged David. Then the, then the person recanted. 
and said, no, I just saw him getting killed. David said, didn't they, did David at- attack that man or do something in retaliation? Yeah. He had him killed. He had him killed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I, and it's coming back to me now, the story. Um, so yeah, I think again, to that goes to the point of what David had said earlier, or what I said David said earlier, which was, uh, you know, who am I to lay a hand on God's anointed? Um, and if, and I think at that point, Saul was, Saul was wounded and he was dying. And the, the initial story was the man basically killed him because he found Saul vulnerable and he could, um, he could overtake him and plus he was dying. So he ended his life. Is that correct? And then, and then he did come back and recant. That's correct. Right. I mean, a similar, a similar instance happened a couple of years later where um, after Saul's death, I think, you know, that his, one of his sons ruled Israel for a couple of years. I think his name is Ishbal. And um, so one of a couple of David's followers uh, murdered, you know, his rival Ishbal, who was, who was ruling Israel while David was ruling Judah. And um, again, you know, David, David's sense of justice came out again, where he had his friends killed for killing his rival in terms of, I don't know how, how you can interpret that. Is that another way of, of what you said earlier? David's like, who am I to determine who's supposed to be the king of Israel? That's God's role. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think it's all kind of tied up in that um, respecting of the authority that's put in place by God. And that's one of the things that you see in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, is that the Judeo-Christian mindset is that none of this happens by circumstance. You know, none of this just comes about. Um, It's all ordained to some extent under God's sovereign control. And so, you know, and this is something not to turn it into a political conversation, but this is one of the things that, you know, I have an issue with a lot of Christian politics, um, because when it's the right person, whatever they do is, is blessed and, and it made, excuses are made for them. When it's the wrong person, it's, um, you know, we need to get them out of office or we need to deal with them harshly because um, they're anti-God or whatever it may be. And I think the mindset that David has throughout all this is the mindset that, that we need to have more, which is that all these people are, and the Bible explicitly states this, that everyone's given power by God. No one with power is given it without God's sovereignty. Now, that doesn't mean he has set up specifically all of the rulers to do their good and bad things, but he has in one interpretation, you could say he has allowed that control to be, and if God's not going to put an end to it abruptly, who am I to put an end to it abruptly? Or some would take it as, no, God has actually positioned each of these people, and we therefore submit to God's sovereignty, and, and the most we would do is pray for God's guidance and how we deal with this, you know, whatever it is, this current administration or this dictator that we live under or whatever it may be. Either one of those, I think, come down to, again, that tale or that, that story of David not willing to strike a hand, raise a hand against God's anointed. Now, I know that brings room for interpretation as to who's anointed. And in the Bible, we have it very clear that Saul was anointed. Um, but I think that's the mentality of, uh, of the story that you're getting is we don't, if God isn't going to abruptly intervene, then we shouldn't be abruptly intervening. We should trust God 
and trust his sovereignty over these leaders and guidance. And, and again, that gets political. And I know, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote your conscience and, and do what you feel is right because we live in a country specifically that gives us that right. So I, I encourage that. Um, but you know, it doesn't always mean, um, I, I guess it doesn't always mean that the leaders we want are the right leaders and the leaders we don't want are the wrong leaders is my point. I hope that gave some, some, some insight. David's also known to being a great warrior, right? I mean, won several battles, you know, uh, defeated a lot of his enemies. Well, you know, became the king of Israel, as we know. He, he, I mean, he uh, designated Jerusalem as the city of God. Um, he moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he wanted to build a temple. But why do you think God did not let him build a temple? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, because wouldn't it have been better for David to have done it than Solomon, who clearly... Um, Clearly was a was a difficult leader, uh, conflicted leader. Um, I think the thing with David again would come down to um, two things. One, I think, would be again because God was more of a representation in David's heart than he was in anything else. Um, and, I, and and I think I'd, I'd leave that there. I think that's enough on that point. So. I, so I'm saying that to say I don't think while David wanted to build God a temple, God's attitude towards him was, I'm fine with that because you embody my temple. Um, I think that's one part. I think the other part to it was at that point in David's life, he had done some, some bad things. David was not a clean character. And I think God also was sending the message, which I think he does, in fact, say in there is basically, you know, look, David, I love you and, and you have a wonderful heart, but you've really disgraced a lot of the office of king and priest. And, um, and no, you can't be the builder of my house because I need someone who hasn't disgraced these positions or disgraced my name. And as much as we love David and want to talk about the great things, you know, there's some pretty bad stuff, as you know. And I think that was part of it. Not to say, again, that Solomon didn't do bad things himself, but I think Solomon's came more in line or after the fact, um, where David's was, you've kind of tarnished things too much, which really which really says something, you know, about God. We, we often look for these really easy answers to give in two minutes or less, and and more often than not, these answers are very nuanced and these stories are very nuanced. And I think you see that here because as much as God loved David and David loved God and God forgave David and David was pleading for forgiveness of things, um, he was denied this. And you see the same, similar thing with Moses. He wasn't allowed into the promised land. If anyone should have been allowed to the promised land, it should have been Moses. He didn't obey and he wasn't allowed. And I think the, the lesson in those that I at least pull from those is, um, is the famous saying of there, but by the grace of God, go I on both sides of the coin, meaning I'm just as much of a failure as them. And on the flip side, 
I can also therefore be as righteous as them to God. Um, I think it gives us hope to achieve what we call greatness that these men achieved, but it also shines a light on the fact that in achieving any greatness that we can, we still are flawed as these men were flawed and God sees it. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't look past that. Everybody knows the story of David versus Goliath, right? Uh, I think the second uh, famous story associated with David is um, his relationship with Bathsheba. And um, I think this was probably one of his uh, most defining mistakes. There seems to be continuing ramifications uh, based on David's actions with Bathsheba for the remainder of his life. It doesn't seem like he has any peace of mind or uh, peace in his household thereafter. Could you uh, tell us more about uh, the incident between him and Bathsheba? Yeah, I think the interesting thing, and I've heard so many sermons, you know, to this story in the past, growing up and different things. Um, it's just such a remarkable scenario because, you know, this is one of the areas. Um, I don't pick parts or books of the Bible and try to explain them away and say scribes must have added this or people must have, you know, put this in or, I, um, and, and I could get into a whole nother line of discussion toward that, but I'll, I'll just say that to say, boy, this is one of those I'd love to blame on some scribe or storyteller that this never really happened. Um, someone added it in, you know, because it's just such a shameful story, but the way the story goes, um, it begins mentioning that it was a time of war for Israel when men are out fighting. And here's the king, and he's not fighting. This fighter, you know, that's, that's what David did. That's, that was his big thing. He was, he was the fighting king, and he was the leader of his men, and he wasn't out there leading his men. This kind of plays to that um, phrase of, uh, you know, idle hands of the devil's workshop type of thing. And David's hands were idle and he wasn't sleeping and he was up at night and he's walking on his rooftop of his palace and he sees this young lady bathing and uh, he's aroused. He's turned on by her and he needs to know who she is. She's beautiful. Obviously she had a knockout body and the king who was supposed to be working, who is also married, um, wasn't working. He wasn't spending time with his family. He wasn't doing any of the things that the king should be doing. He wasn't at battle with his men. He says, I want to know who this woman is. And he has his men bring her to him. And he basically has his way with her. Um, we don't know what that means exactly. And that's another really bothersome point. Um, obviously, she's a subject in his kingdom. I don't think she would have, I think she would have been wise enough. She was a married woman. I think she would have been wise enough to know that if the king's having me come to his palace um, and I'm going to have sex with the king, I'm not going to fight him. But either way, David raped her. I mean, it's basically, you know, he may not have physically forced himself on her. She may have willingly gave herself to him, but I don't know that it was in her heart. I don't know. And we, we just don't know that part of the story. So I am making assumptions, but I don't necessarily feel that she felt like she had a love story to share with David. And boy, this was exciting and wonderful. I get the feeling more that she was summoned and she just fulfilled the duty quietly because he's the king. What are you going to do? Um, 
But either way, so David and Bathsheba end up having uh, sex, and come to find out Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now, at this point in the story, it would be admirable if David acknowledged his sin and admitted to his wife he'd been an adulterer, he got this lady pregnant, maybe do the right thing, be a responsible parent, take care of the son, um, maybe buy the house for Bathsheba and her husband, uh, whatever it may be. But he didn't. He decided to press on further, which is often what we do in our sin, is we try to, you know, you tell a lie to make up a lie, and before you know it, you've told a hundred lies. And so he has her husband sent out to the battlefield on the front line and killed. And the reasoning behind that is because the husband has been fighting at war. If the husband could come home on leave, he could have sex with Bathsheba, then they could pin this pregnancy on the husband. So he has the husband come home, but the husband will not have sex with his wife because he's in the midst of war. And by his honor to Israel and those who are out fighting, who is he to enjoy this benefit of R&R while everyone else is fighting? His friends, his countrymen are dying. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to be home. He doesn't want to be relaxing. He wants to be on the battlefield. So he refuses and he goes back to the battlefield. And David's response to that is, well, then let's put this man on the front line because this man has to die so that we can say it was his child. He didn't know it was his child. He would know it was not his child because he didn't have sex with his wife. So basically that's how the story plays out. And Uriah dies. David takes Bathsheba and the son to be his own. And now he looks like a benevolent king because he's taking care of the poor widow and her child while the husband was out in the field and died for him. So David didn't kill him. He didn't have him executed, but he manipulated the situation. David committed murder. I mean, I don't think there's any way you can look at that as anything differently. So um, David gets confronted. And the prophet says to him, there's a man who has, if I can remember the parable properly, um, there's a man who has a, a beautiful sheep. And I might butcher this, so I'll just paraphrase it quickly and easily. But he says, um, you know, another man who's jealous of that sheep has the sheep taken from the man. And, and I think the story says, has the man killed or something? So what should happen to this man who stole the sheep? and killed, killed the owner. And David says he should be killed. He should be executed. He should be done away with. This is horrible. Bring him to me and I'll kill him myself. And David's told, well, that man is you. And David gets it. He gets it right away. He knows the story's a made-up story, and he just did this. And the interesting thing, so many people in this story deserve David's repentance, deserve his begging for forgiveness. And the story doesn't do it. It doesn't have David go to Bathsheba, go to his wife, go to anyone other than he goes to God. 
and he says, to you alone, I've sinned, recognizes it's to you, God, that I've sinned. Because the truth of the matter is, without God, without the, the moral laws, without the, the fixed point of objective morality or there being a God in the first place, everything is meaningless. All of us are, we're dust. We're, we're nothing. And so we can really consider the fact that anything we do to each other is inconsequential. It means nothing. In the scope of eternity, if there is no God, and this is all just a, a chance of evolution and cosmic chaos, finding life in this unintentional universe, then nothing matters. And anything you do to anyone else really means absolutely nothing good or bad, because once it's all done and the planet's no longer here and nothing exists, then nothing really ever mattered in the first place. It was no different is kind of the mindset. I'm obviously expounding on that, but, but that's where I see that. That's what, that's what I understand from that into saying to you alone have I sinned. And the idea behind that is, again, David in his heart for God, he realized that in everything else I do and everything else I've done in everything that is me, it's only all because of you, because of your existence and your blessing to have me exist. And as shameful as all of that is, he repents to God, and God basically says, you know, your heart is wonderful, and I do forgive you. However, there's a consequence to your sin, and your child will be that consequence. And there's a death penalty served for that sin, which is what we see routinely, and that death penalty is that child between uh, David's oldest, between um, he and Bathsheba, is now going to die. And David mourns for him, and, and uh, it's horrific. Um, you know, he does make the interesting statement, too, that's, that's in there that um, we have where David says, you know, I know that he'll no longer come to me, but I will one day go to him, um, which, which is an insight into David's repentance and his forgiveness, in a sense, saying, my son will be in heaven and I'll see him again, too. Um, despite all this calamity and things, you know, meaning that David was forgiven and we will see him in heaven in a sense. Um, you know, our sin is, is horrific and horrible, but God's mercy and grace is, is that much better. So that's my take on the story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's some, I think there's something in a, there's a verse in two Samuel. Well, you know, it's a bit touching where God, you could, feel you could god's disappointment right and david i think he said i would have given you more david you know why did you do this you know um it's just the disappointment comes out in that statement it's like so um it's so sad but uh, you could yeah it's it's horrible i mean whatever i can say in my life that i failed at i i've not done anything like that <laughs> um I, I mean that's just wow <laughs> I, mean, I think you're right. You know, David got a little too comfortable in his palace, you know, not going to war, but she was, you know, not attending to his duties, right? Like he used to just got him in trouble. But at least what he did, which I admire, is that he repented immediately when he realized, right, when he was confronted by Nathan, I think it was that, oh, my God, I did. So um, whereas Saul probably would have made a million excuses and just aggravate everybody. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I'll, I'll give David that. 
And I think you get a glimpse of that in the story we started with with Saul, and now this one with David is, again, when Samuel, the prophet, you have a, a mirror image in a sense. When Samuel comes and uh, confronts Saul, he has an excuse. It's, I did this for God. Wait a minute. You know, I was doing this for God. You wanted me to kill all these animals, but the law tells me to preserve the best and sacrifice. I have my justifications. When David's confronted, you know, he could have said, wait a minute, I did this for God. You know, I did this because I don't want to smear the name of God. Because of my failings, I could put a black mark on, I could cause people to lose their faith. I could cause people to walk away because they could see that a king would do something so bad. So I covered it because I was trying to cover it for God. I'm just making this up. But, you know, he could have said anything. And he didn't. He said, to you alone, I've sinned. Oh, my God, you know, this is this is who I am. And the, the, the other thing that's unspoken in that that I think is brilliant, because I see this in my own life, and I'm sure people can see it in their life, is sometimes we're not aware of how bad we can be. We're not aware of our depravity. We're not quite aware of the depths. I was asked, I think it was on my last podcast with, the, um, I was going to say with the Mormon, but we now I've learned to call them the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints members, which is a mouthful. But um, anyway, um, he had asked me a question about uh, what do you think our greatest potential is? And and I had kind of interpreted it in my way as to what do you think we're most capable of? But I think he was saying, what do you think is the high? Well, he was saying, what do you what is the highest we can achieve? Um, And in interpreting it the way I did, I said that I, I think my response to that was destruction or self-destruction is our greatest potential because we so we so fill ourselves with our with ourselves with our pride our narcissism we don't see who we really are we don't see how bad we've become at times you know i mean there's times when we've done well but you know this is where when people get into that downward spiral and they do bad they lie they lie again they lie again it just spirals down you know we often say to people um, yeah, they're the worst kind of liar because they believe their lies. I think that's the position David was in. He had become the worst kind of liar. He was lying to himself, and he didn't even see it. And it took that story to knock him out of it, to get him to see what a what a wretched person you've become. How have you how have you gotten this far down? Comes down to ego, right? When we start feeding our ego, and just it's a slippery slope. Absolutely. So at this stage in David's life, I think I mentioned earlier, it doesn't seem like he has any rest, right? There's a lot of unrest in his home, and he doesn't really um, find himself at peace. I was just going to make one last comment to that. Is Yeah, you notice at, at, at that point in the story, what we do here of the rest of David's life, it, it kind of fizzles. It's not as um, dynamic and as it was in the beginning, and there's kind of a more... Um, you know, he's content in his, in a sense, lack of a better term, I'll say he's content in his salvation, but it's almost like he's seen the depths of, of what him and sin can bring. And it's, it's a different David at, at that point, I'll give you. No, I agree 100%. Delving a little bit more in David's personal life moving forward, right? Um, you said kind of David's light kind of dimmed after this whole incident with Bathsheba and um, but you know his children grew up and there was an incident with 
one of his sons and one of his daughters, I think Amnon and Tamar. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so so Absalom's David's um, son. He's David has many children, and as we've seen, he's got um, different mothers for different children. So Absalom is a uh, one of the children. He has a half sister Tamar, and essentially uh, he coerces her to his to his room under the guise of. Uh, of her bringing him some food, and he, he essentially rapes her. He rapes his half-sister, both children of David. And there's a third in there, the brother Absalom, who, um, who when David finds out about this, he, he effectively does nothing. And that's a real, you know, I, I think to the point you made initially, is this is kind of the playing out of our sin, is that David has brought unrest upon his family. Um, it's not that David committed this rape, but David raped Bathsheba. His children are learning from the experience, whether directly or indirectly. I think it's, you know, this thing that your sin will follow you throughout your life. And, and it's really a warning to us while we think we get away with things and while we may be forgiven by God, um, the world we live in is a world of cause and effect and, and corruption included in that, as well as blessing. You know, we see that in Old Testament teachings, that there's blessings and there's cursings. And I think this follows under the category of there's cursings. And so, you know, here we're seeing unrest in David's own home. Now, the puzzling part to this is that David really doesn't do anything. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't have a good answer for that. I don't really have a solid answer for that. And I think really what this points to is um, David's failings in his household, his failings in his kingdom. Again, you know, I've mentioned he kind of fizzles at the end of his life or at the end of his uh, career as king. And I think you're, you're seeing that effect of this. Um, David, there's a lot, you know, we can, we can point to him and say he wasn't a good guy about. And I think that's, that's one of it, you know. Um, to that, though, his son, Absalom, who's more uh, upset about the situation, he basically avenges his sister's uh, rape by killing Amnon. And, uh, and I think you have there the, you know, man doing what's right, um, man taking matters into his own hands type of thing. Um, but I don't, I, again, I, I don't understand from David's standpoint, okay, I, I get it that you're dealing with your firstborn son and that you have, you know, the place of your, of your children in a sense. Um, but something, something deserved to be done, you know? And, and I think, um, maybe Absalom was going I don't know. I hesitate to say going too far because technically, you know, if you want to follow Mosaic law, again, if we want to be held to the law, we're going to die by the law. And I think as far as um, Absalom killing him, you can say, well, he did what was right by the law. But I also think, but then it wasn't Absalom's place to do that by the law. And again, there's guidelines, rules and restrictions to the law, just as we have nowadays. Um, 
we don't just let anyone go out and kill someone because they killed someone or did something. If a father shows up in the courtroom of the man who raped his daughter and he kills him, that father's still going to be charged with murder. He's not going to get around that. Um, you know, so it, it, it's, it's really a mess. It's, it's hard to, to find any solid value in this other than it shows the, the depth of our sin and what it can become in someone, even as well as we talked about in the beginning as David. And, uh, and again, David being a prototype of Jesus, um, the prophet who is the king, who is the priest, I think that's all the more reason why we can look toward Jesus and see the perfection where all these other men have failed. I guess that's the best I can give you on that one. Something that God said after the Bathsheba incident, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, that he will bring misfortune upon David and his house and that none of his deeds would be kept in secret. They will be out in broad daylight for all of Israel to see and that somebody's going to take his wives. That kind of, I wonder if that's foreshadowing of Absalom, you know, David's one of David's sons who um, uh, rebels against him. Can you tell us about Absalom and, and his relationship with David and what happened there? Yeah, so, so Absalom's David's um, son. He's, David has many children, and as we've seen, he's got um, different mothers for different children. So Absalom is a, uh, one of the children. He has a half-sister, Tamar, and essentially uh, he coerces her to his, to his room under the guise of, uh, of her bringing him some food, and he, he essentially rapes her. He rapes his half-sister, both children of David. And there's a third in there, the brother Absalom, who... Um, who, when David finds out about this, he, he effectively does nothing. And that's a real, you know, I, I think to the point you made initially is this is kind of the playing out of our sin is that David has brought unrest upon his family. Um, not that David committed this rape, but David raped Bathsheba. His children are learning from the experience, whether directly or indirectly. I think it's, you know, this thing that your sin will follow you throughout your life. And, and it's really a warning to us while we think we get away with things and while we may be forgiven by God, um, the world we live in is a world of cause and effect and, and corruption included in that as well as blessing. You know, we see that in Old Testament teachings that there's blessings and there's cursings. And I think this follows under the category of there's cursings and so, you know, here we're seeing unrest in David's own home. Now, the puzzling part to this is that David really doesn't do anything. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't have a good answer for that. I don't really have a solid answer for that. And I think really what this points to is um, David's failings in his household, his failings in his kingdom. Again, you know, I've mentioned he kind of fizzles at the end of his life or at the end of his uh, career as king. And I think you're, you're seeing that effect of this. Um, David, there's a lot, you know, we can, we can point to him and say he wasn't a good guy about. And I think that's, that's one of it, you know. Um, to that, though, his son, Absalom, who's more uh, 
upset about the situation, he basically avenges his sister's uh, rape by killing Amnon. And, uh, and I think you have there the, you know, man doing what's right. Um, man taking matters into his own hands type of thing. Um, but I don't, I, again, I, I don't understand from David's standpoint. Okay. I, I get it that you're dealing with your firstborn son and that you have, you know, the place of your, of your children in a sense. Um, but something, something served to be done, you know? And, and I think, um, maybe Absalom was going, I, I don't know. I hesitate to say going too far because technically, you know, if you want to follow Mosaic law, again, if we want to be held to the law, we're going to die by the law. And I think as far as, um, Absalom killing him, you can say, well, he did what was right by the law, but I also think, but then it wasn't Absalom's place to do that by the law. And again, there's guidelines, rules, and restrictions to the law, just as we have nowadays. Um, we don't just let anyone go out and kill someone because they killed someone or did something. If a father shows up in the courtroom of the man who raped his daughter and he kills him, that father's still going to be charged with murder. He's not going to get around that. Um, you know, so it, it, it's, it's really a mess. It's, it's hard to, to find any solid value in this other than it shows the, the depth of our sin and what it can become in someone, even as well as we talked about in the beginning as David. And, uh, and again, David being a prototype of Jesus, um, the prophet who is the king, who is the priest, I think that's all the more reason why we can look toward Jesus and see the perfection where all these other men have failed. I guess that's the best I can give you on that one. Yeah, so I wonder whether David's inaction was uh, as a result of what he did uh, with Bathsheba. Now he was seeing what was being done uh, through his son. You know, and uh, something I do take issue with is that his daughter was violated, right? And he didn't do anything about it. And in those days, as you know, honor and virginity are, were a huge thing. And now she was tainted and she, nobody can marry her. Um, so it just, I scratch my head, you know, why David didn't do anything about it. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing around the whole thing is it's all his children. It's all his family. Like this is, this hurts in so many levels, you know, it's not just, oh, my son raped a woman. It's, oh, my son raped a woman. Oh, my daughter has been raped again in that culture, you know, to your point, she's no longer acceptable to any man. There's no, you know, her value has decreased. Um, it could also, you know, there, there's an element to this too, that I'll, I'll give you. It could also have a part to play in it is that, you know, again, you've got the son, um, a lot more valuable than a daughter. And that's a, you know, disparity on that culture, but it, it's the way it was. And, um, and just the value might not have been there as strong, you know, again, like I, it's a head scratcher. <laughs> it's a tough one. And the best I can, I can pull out of these. And this is one of the, this is one of the things I love about the Bible, to be honest with you, is um, we can, we can see these stories, we can confront them and we can say, yeah, they were bad or they were wrong. You know, one of the, one of the ones um, I can point to is in the book of Judges, Jephthah, 
and his daughter. And um, just to real quickly make a point to that story or tell the story and then make a point to it. Um, you know, he basically makes a commitment to the Lord saying for the victories you've given me, you know, in battle and all the great things we've done. First thing I see when I return home that comes out of my, my doorpost or my home or something, which is, a, which is a curious way to phrase things. Um, I'll sacrifice to you. And it brings, and I say curious cause I'm not sure what the wording translation is on that. I'm not so much in the Hebrew as much as I am in the Greek and maybe that doorpost or the, or the door, whatever means on his property. And, but because you wouldn't be expecting a cattle to come walking out of your front door, you would only expect your wife, your children, people to come walking through your home door. But it must have meant something to that extent. I haven't looked enough into it. But either way, he makes this commitment to the Lord that says, you know, first thing I lay my eyes on coming from my home, I'll sacrifice to you. And the first thing that he lays eyes on coming from his home is his daughter. And um, and scholars have tried to brush this away. But, you know, the story as it goes um, the daughter, Jephthah, tells her of his oath he made to God. And the daughter, amazingly, her response isn't to run away from her psychotic father who just committed to killing her before God, but she goes and she moans and wails and weeps and mourns with her friends. Um, and it's kind of like insinuated. The story doesn't, it doesn't say that she went and weeped because she was going to die. And so scholars say, well, she was weeping because what that means is Jephthah was committing her to the priesthood, kind of like the way a nun would be. And so now she would not have children. She would never be a mother. And so they were weeping because of that loss in her life. Well, that's not the oath Jephthah made. Jephthah said he would sacrifice. It. And anything we know of sacrificing, you know, you have to play with the words to make it sound like he was sacrificing her to the priesthood. What it seems like is he was sacrificing her like, like Abraham Isaac sacrificing, like killing her for God. And, um, and that's very troubling. Now, I will say this. Number one, this is after the Levitical laws were given. And human sacrifice is strictly forbidden in, in Leviticus. So if Jephthah did that, I think he's wrong on many levels. He's wrong on making an oath like that. He's wrong on sacrificing his daughter. Yeah, that's a human sacrifice that's forbidden in Levitical laws. He's wrong on many, many levels. But again, and this is the really difficult things that the Bible does grapple with, and that's why I, I find it so amazing in its ability to teach us about ourselves, because it doesn't shy away from these hard stories. It doesn't hide them. It leaves them exposed and lets us deal with them and have to figure out what God's up to. But um. The really interesting thing to that is if you read the book of Hebrews, when the author talks about the greats of the faith, Jephthah is mentioned. And maybe it's because of other deeds, but I don't think the author of Hebrews had any more literature and insight on Jephthah than what we do. And is it because of this oath that he made to God that despite anything else, again, to that, to you alone, have I sinned? that God is the only thing that matters, and Jephthah kept his oath and sacrificed his daughter. I mean, I'm, I find that, I have to be honest in saying, if that's what great faith is, I don't know that I have great faith. You know, I, I'm just, I mean, I, I, that's, that scares me to contemplate it. But anyway, um, 
yeah, I think we deal with some really bad events in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, moving forward a bit, um, we, Absalom's rebelled, uh, David and most of his household is um, chased out of Jerusalem. Uh, but then this is where I think, you know, we see a spark in David where he's, his leadership uh, qualities reemerge. You know, he starts giving orders to his men. Um, he starts placing, strategically placing people in Absalom's circle who report back to David, and David eventually wins back Jerusalem, right? Um, and uh, Absalom's killed, and we see David mourn like any parent would uh, of a death of a child. But, um, in terms of David, you know, I, I do see some restoration in him in terms of, um, you know, getting his throne back and winning back the city of God. Um, so now David's getting older. He becomes ill. He's on his deathbed. And this is where, you know, I would love your clarification on is how is Solomon, you know, selected to succeed David? Because we know that David had an eldest son who... Uh, got ahead of himself and started declaring himself to be the next king. And we can talk, you know, we know the fate of that son later on. But if you can just uh, help us walk us through how Solomon was selected to be the next king, was that humanly engineered or was Solomon divinely appointed? Well, I, I would say Solomon was more appointed. Um, it was Nathan who really kind of um, pointed him as the future king. And it was done in a way, basically, to, to kind of make the story short. It was done in a way to save Bathsheba's life. Um, because at the time, David was getting older. And as many Game of Thrones stories will go, people are jockeying for the, for the kingdom. They're jockeying for the throne. And so you have that kind of wrestle and battle. Um, and the interesting thing, I'll say this to say the story. Um, I think... First Kings opens with this story, so you can read it in First Kings 1 to get the whole drama behind it. But in the sake of time, what I'll say is, is that's interesting to this story about it is me, is I don't see in here that God instructs Solomon to be king and Nathan pronounces him as king. I don't see what we saw with David becoming king. God drove that. In this case, man is driving it. And I think that's a real, there's, there's a couple real interesting things coming out of this. Number one, that point in David's life, again, that Bathsheba story becoming that pivotal point where David had kind of, in a sense, reached his peak. And then in his laziness of that peak, everything went downhill after that. Not only for him, but I think for the kings of Israel, because now what you end up having through first and second Kings. I don't know exactly. I want to say maybe I'm going to give you ballpark numbers and I could totally be off. Let's just round it and say there's 40 Kings that are discussed throughout this. What now this becomes is men appointing Kings lineage appointing Kings. It's not as much this God appointing of Kings. God's involved and he's trying to straighten things out. But I think out of that 40 Kings that you have throughout this rest of this book, first and second Kings and then Chronicles and so on. Um, if there's 40 of the Kings, I think it's something crazy. Like 36 of them are basically um, 
not only failures of kings, but are complete uh, washouts. They're, they're, in some cases, they're no acknowledgement of God. They're, in some cases, I would maybe label them as anti-God. Um, they're against the law. They're, they're, they're retrobates. They're doing horrible things. They're, they're not good kings. Like, Israel does not return to a glory in any of this. The struggles become deeper. The struggles become harder. They don't ever return to that great Davidic kingdom that David had, that, that wonderful. Now they do get the temple, but it's a sham. It's, a, it's not ever what Israel was promised they would get or promised they would be or become. Now, whether that all has directly to do with David and that corruption setting the pace for the rest of it, I don't know. Maybe that is. But I think what it ultimately leads toward is the story of our need for the Messiah, for a savior, for that true prophet, king, and priest who we find in, in Jesus. And, um, and that's where we get to eventually in the old, in the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that that perfection is found in Christ and not in man. And I think that's the real key to all this that we've been talking about. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks. That was great. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, yeah. So, so let me, let me back up for a minute. Um, just to what you were saying about David and, you know, the end there of, of his life. Um, again, if, if, if you kind of look at what we've talked about, he went from being the poster child, you know, the, in a sense, the, the, the perfect specimen, he was the, uh, he was anointed by God. It was because of his heart. It wasn't because of his, um, it wasn't because of his might. It wasn't because of his power. It was because of his heart for God. And even with that, he's got to struggle through this King Saul. And he's got to get to the point where eventually, after all the stuff we've talked about, not to go through and reiterate it all, but, you know, he, he becomes the king. And he, in effect, has everything that, he fought for everything that he needed. He's been justified. Um, God has been on his side. And I think that point in the Bathsheba story to what we said, you know, when, when the men were out fighting at that time, he wasn't, I think there's a really critical point to that because it's like, in a sense, he gave up. He kind of achieved what he thought was, was needed. And he was just experiencing the benefit of his, hard work or whatever, this life that he had. Um, and then that's when everything kind of the story changes and it turns. And, and I had said, you know, it kind of, his life fizzles um, because yeah, he does get back involved. Yeah. He does start making decisions again, but again, it, it's a different David and it's, and it, it just, again, just shows us the story of how far we can go and then it's not necessarily that, yes, you can be redeemed, you can be spiritually restored as God's child, as his kingdom, but you never, you never get away from what that sin has birthed in a sense. You know, um, if you use, a, you know, a, a simple modern example, um, you know, if you have an, an affair on your spouse, they can forgive you. They can, you know trust that you truly are repentant and you wish that you never did that and 
but it doesn't go back to the way it was necessarily. Um, there's always a lingering, you know what I mean? There's always something, there may be a doubt, something may be there. Um, so anyway, um, (laughs) thank you. Um, can I ask one last question since I have you just, it, it just came to my mind, you know, um, does God make mistakes? <laughs> that's no, that's a good question. And, and, and yeah, I know, you know, it can be a sensitive topic, but I don't shy away from those. Um, so I guess the easy answer I would say is no, God doesn't make a mistake because if he did by definition, he wouldn't be God. And, and I know that can sound like circular reasoning, but the point being to it is um, if Without trying to approach it from more of a, uh, an atheist argument of whether God exists or not, I'd say it to say this. The definition of God is, is many attributes of all-knowing, um, all-perfect is one of them, all-benevolent. You know, so he's always, it's not just that he knows what's right to do. He does what's right to do in all circumstances, in all situations. Now, the issue with that is, well, what is right? Who gets to determine right? What is the right thing to do. And sometimes the right thing seems like God might just be playing with our lives. Um, but again, in the grand scheme of things, if we really not arguing whether God exists for this to be true, but arguing from the standpoint that God does exist, we have to acknowledge that in the grand scheme of things outside of God, there's absolutely nothing. Everything is meaningless and we only find value and meaning because God exists. So when we see things like um, killing of innocent children, um, God repenting or um, grieving that he created man in the flood of Noah or the census or, or whatever the story may be, you know, we, we wrestle with those because of our limited understanding of what life is, what the purpose of life is, how life, I guess I would leave it at that. What, what life is and the purpose of life. And so I say it this way, um, in God's time and and he's outside of time and space, but in God's, uh, yeah, we'll just say it as in God's time. Um, he makes the right decisions for our souls. So, when you take a situation like the killing of Canaanite children, commanding them to be slaughtered, if I'm correct in my way I understand God and in the way I would see that playing out, those children get an instant pass into eternity, into heaven. Now, I truly do believe that once we are in eternity, we will look back on this shallow 70 years and be perplexed at how we found so much importance on minor things in here that we thought were so big. We get a shadow of this in our existing life when we're 12 years old and that boy or that girl breaks our heart and life's over and it ends only to when we're 30 to look back and be like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that problem nowadays. My problems are so much greater. I see that with eternity. I see it as that's how we're going to look back and think we were so concerned about holding on to this temporary fleeting life. It governed everything we did and rightly so because it's all we know, but Now that we can see it on the other side, so many of those decisions we would make differently. So many things that we put importance on, we're not important at all. 
We wanted to make money, do this, you know, achieve things, buy this, build this, have sex with beautiful women we saw on rooftops, taking baths, all these things that we let govern and destroy our character and our life. We could make those decisions more from the perspective of eternity. We would see them differently. And so I'm giving you a roundabout answer, but again, some of these are very, they're not easy answers to give. And the way I see those things is that God in his perfection, he accounts for all things. He has all understanding of everything. And a large part of that is eternity and what's important for, for what needs to be done, whether it's for his purposes or for the sake of others. And sometimes it seems like he's making sacrifices of humans. He's doing something unjust to others. Um, but he has a purpose. He has a goal and he's driving towards that. And sometimes, um, you know, we think it harms us. It hurts us. But I think, let me say this last part to close on that. I think that's where Jesus and his beatitudes comes in because it's blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the kingdom. Uh, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, and it's all these kind of downtrodden personalities, but the recognition is, but they're blessed because of it, because God sees it. And in a sense, God sees their sacrifice. God sees their, their bad breaks at things. God sees their abuse that they're suffering. God sees their bad calamities, whatever it may be brought on, brought on by. And so when God says, you know, I, in a sense, the Jeremiah and the potter's wheel, I make the clay, I make the pot. And it's my, it's in my right to turn one into a chalice for champagne and another into a bedpan. It's my right to crush one and cherish the other. It's my right to do what I will because I'm the creator of all things. That sounds so vile to us because we have a self-will. We have a desire for us to be the important one. And it doesn't sit well to be reminded that we're really just jars of clay. We really don't matter. God does not need us. He wants us. That's what makes us valuable is his want for us. The universe can exist without us. It can't exist without God. So when we have these really difficult... Yeah, it's his universe. We just live in it. It's his universe. And I, and I know that sounds like, the well, it's his universe. You're just lucky to live in it. Yeah. But that is the truth. And that's the truth that we hate to hear is that we're insignificant. The only thing that gives us significance or value is God. And, um, and so I would say there's a level of faith that I employ in some of these stories and some of these difficulties to wrestle with that I say, I've learned enough about God and his attributes and who he is through so much of the Bible that yes, there are passages, there are stories, there are parts that I look at it and I'm, I scratch my head about, like you had said, but that's where faith, which is trust. It's literally the Latin word of trust comes in to say what I do know about God. I can trust that he's making the right decision in these things even though I may not see it or understand it. Um, because otherwise, what I'm left doing is trying to make those judgments and decisions for myself. And I don't have enough information to do that. And I'm definitely not wise enough to do that. Um, and I think that's what it really comes down to is, again, back to Genesis 3, when we're confronted with these things, we're saying, did God really say? I'm questioning God's authority on this. I'm questioning God's motive. I'm questioning his action. I think I have a better decision than he does. 
And that's just plain foolishness because truth is you weren't there when those things happened in the Bible. I wasn't there. We don't know all of the story. We don't know all the details that maybe were left out. We don't know everything that went into the decisions that were made. So I kind of rest on the comfort that I have trust that what I do know of God covers all that, that I don't know of God, because I think I know more about him and his attributes based on what I've read out of that to trust him. This was a great discussion. I really thank you for taking the time. If listeners want to get in touch with you or want to find your podcast or your films, what is the best way of doing that? Um, I think the best thing would be to go to johnchristie.com, J-O-H-N-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. And that'll pretty much have podcasts, any articles, um, contact me, anything like that. Uh, there's a link to the movie, My Week in Atheism on Amazon. Uh, Amazon, excuse me. Um, Amazon is, I guess, my version of Amazon Prime because what I was going to say is it's free to um, watch if you have Amazon Prime. And if you don't, I think it's 99 cents or something. So um, that was done just to give a quick that was uh, 2014. I released it. Uh, it's called My Week in Atheism, but it's actually a, a journey of a year with my friend uh, who's an atheist, David Smalley, who has a uh, podcast. It used to be called Dogma Debate. Now it's called David C. Smalley. Um, and basically over the course of a year, we went to a couple atheist conventions. Um, I was on his podcast. Uh, we met with some students at the University of uh, North Texas and did like a uh, open discussion night. Um, and we filmed all of this over the course of a year. And, you know, again, as many, my approach to a lot of things, maybe as you can tell through this conversation, um, I don't claim to have the answers in everything. I don't try to have the answers in everything. I'm comfortable with my questions, with my gaps, with my doubts. Um, I'm always learning. And, uh, and that was part of this process. You know, I did, this wasn't a movie for me to disprove atheism and show Christianity as the true belief system. It was more a movie of me to learn about atheism from atheists. And of course, I'm going to compare and contrast and have my discussions of Christianity. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, basically, it's basically that, having the conversation and continuing the conversation. Thanks again for being on the show, John. Listeners, that was John Christie, Christian scholar, speaker, filmmaker, and fellow podcaster. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Mystics and Skeptics. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Amazon Music, Spotify, Patreon, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and stay in peace, everyone. <laughs>